Praise the Lord that we are continuing forward together in the book of Acts, still in Acts chapter 9. The title of the sermon is The Lord Unifies His Church, and we'll actually be looking at verses 26 to 31. Now let's stand together, please, for the reading of Scripture. <clears throat> I'll read from verse 18 through until verse 43 of chapter 9, and please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. <clears throat> And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him. And turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, 
he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. Psalm 133 is the psalm of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Robert Hawker comments on this. Think, my soul, how little of this fellowship and communion is found in the present day in the languishing state of our churches. Behold the cause. If there be no constant receivings from Christ, how shall there be communications among the brethren? If the intercourse with the great head be remitted, what shall the members have to impart? Oh, for grace to be looking unto Jesus, the life-giving head of His church. Oh, Lord Jesus, that Thou wouldest visit Thy people, Thy ministers, Thy churches. Tell me, O Thou whom my soul loveth, where Thou feedest Thy flock at noon. See, Lord, how Thy people languish. Give us, Lord, a little reviving in our bondage. Come among us with thy great power. Stir us up to take hold of thy strength. So, sh so shall we have grace flourishing in our own hearts. And communications will go forth among the brethren. So shall we be prepared for the everlasting enjoyment of Jesus and his church by grace here for glory hereafter. So what can we learn today from how the Lord integrates Saul into his church in Jerusalem. What are the forces that worked to divide the Lord's church at that time? And do we continue to see the same types of forces at work in our own hearts and in our midst and in God's church today? There was fear and there was unbelief. There were th that was within the hearts and within the believers. And there were threats from outside the church as well. So how did the Lord work to bring His people together? And what did the Lord do to bring them together and to keep them together? Well, we see peacemaker Barnabas is present and God is working through him in a beautiful way. We see the Lord bring them to a common focus upon and a common love for Christ the Lord and for His kingdom and for His mission. They have time to grow together in trust. God gives that to them. And there's then loving cohesiveness that's expressed even in the midst of mortal threats. It is reminiscent of what we saw last week in Damascus. When the Lord is at work in this way, His church, as we'll see in verse 31, His church experiences peace and edification. The church is built up the individuals are strengthened. The relationships are strengthened. The church is made a more beautiful and powerful structure. There's reverence. There's walking in the fear of the Lord that takes place where the people are cognizant 
of the Lord's presence and they walk in his presence together. And in that there is comfort, there's consolation, and there's church growth. Multiplication, not just in grace, but in numbers of new members. This is what we see God doing for his church at that time. And the Lord has not changed. and He still does these things for his glory and for his people today. Acts chapter 9 verses 26 through 31. There are a lot of things going on here. But I do think the title is the point of emphasis of this text. The Lord is unifying his church and making his church to be able to do what he has called it to do and to demonstrate his love to the world. There were some forces at work in verse 26, fear and unbelief in the Jerusalem church. Verse 27, Barnabas responds as the peacemaker to bring Saul and the church at Jerusalem together. And then we see in verse 28 that they accept him and he's enfolded into the Jerusalem church, freely moving in their midst. Meanwhile, Saul continues his mission and his preaching, his bold preaching provokes the Jews to wrath. They want to kill him. Does that sound familiar? But, like we saw in Damascus, the Jerusalem church works together to protect Saul. They learn of the threat by God's grace. Another example, that we are safe in his arms, that no one can take us from this earth until the work he has for you is finished. And from this we see flowering forth what God has done to bring peace to this assembly, we see, at least in textual connection, and very likely in practical connection at that time, a strong and healthy and growing church, not just in Jerusalem, not just at Caesarea where they took him, but all throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So let's dive into the text together. What's going on? Verse 26 tells us what happens. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So Saul has now returned to Jerusalem after his overnight basket escape from Damascus. Recall that after his conversion, he spent three years-ish in Arabia before he came back to Damascus for this time of preaching and this time of persecution. And it appears that very shortly after he is delivered safely by God from the mortal threats of the Jews in Damascus, that he makes his way to Jerusalem. He wants to join the fellowship of believers in Jerusalem. He wants to be a part of their community. But they will not at first receive him because they are afraid of him. And their fear is based upon the belief that he is not genuine, that he is not who he says that he is. They think he could be pretending. They wonder, could he be a spy playing some sort of sophisticated game of deceit? They don't believe he's a disciple. They believe something else must be going on. Now, no mention is made of Saul's response to being rejected by the disciples, and and make no mistake about it, it was a rejection. Imagine someone coming to our church saying, hey, I love what I see here. I'm a new believer. I I really want to be a part of your assembly, 
but I was a murderer and I was in prison and I have these satanic tattoos all over my face. You see my point, I hope. Would we receive them? Would we be willing to sit and listen and receive them or would we reject them out of fear? Now, certainly they had every good reason to be afraid because he had proven himself to be very dangerous to God's church. We can guess at Saul's internal response to this. His subsequent willingness to go with Barnabas to the disciples shows at least that he had not allowed a root of bitterness to set up in his soul that would cause him to thumb his nose at the church at Jerusalem. I don't need you. I'm an apostle. I've been called to be an apostle. I don't need your approval. I'll go and do my ministry somewhere else. And it's true. He didn't need their approval. He was an apostle called by Jesus Christ. He did not need, he was not a sub-apostle. He was an apostle. And they had accused him basically of being disingenuous about his status as a follower of Jesus. He's a real apostle and essentially he's being accused of being a real imposter. He went back to them. So something, at least eventually, he was in the right frame of mind. The commentary says, Now might Paul be tempted to think himself in an ill case when the Jews had abandoned and persecuted him and the Christians would not receive and entertain him. Now think about that. He, he would maybe feel all alone at this point, with nowhere to turn. Back to the commentary Thus does he fall into divers' temptations and needs the armor of righteousness as we all do, both on the right hand and on the left, that we may not be discouraged either by the unjust treatment of our enemies or the unkind treatment of our friends. So who knows what that lonely moment was like for Saul when he was rejected by the church in Jerusalem. He wanted to join the disciples. Now this word means to glue together, to fastened together, for something to be cemented together, firmly together. He wanted to join himself to them. He wanted to cleave to them. That's what this word means. It wasn't just coming for a nice little visit. No, Saul wanted to become a covenant member with that church at Jerusalem. They would not have him. What was that lonely moment like for him? The commentary describes wherever he came, he owned himself one of that despised, persecuted people and associated with them. So his heart was to be with God's people. They were now in his eyes the excellent ones of the earth in whom was all his delight. He desired to be acquainted with them and to be admitted into communion with them. Prior to this, he wanted to kill them and destroy them. Now he finds them to be the joy of his heart. He wants to be with the people of God. And yet he's been rejected So he's under the threats of the Jews and he's got this time where he's rejected by the church. They're afraid of him. This word means to be put to flight by terrifying, to scare away, to be struck with fear, to be seized with alarm. It causes you to hesitate to do something because you're afraid you're going to get hurt. So these these disciples, all of them were told, were scared of Saul. They were afraid of him. They were afraid that he was going to harmed them like he had in the past. Now, why were they afraid? The text tells us because they did not believe that he was a disciple. That's what the text says. They did not believe that he was really a disciple. They doubted his sincerity. And so they were unwilling to risk his ongoing presence in their midst. Now, did they know for sure he wasn't a disciple? No. 
They just didn't believe he was. They had doubt about whether he was genuine. Now remember this, most of the Jerusalem church leaders had the memory of Judas in their midst. They saw how Jesus had been betrayed by that pretender. Note how fear and unbelief travel together. Often unbelief will lead to fear and fear will also further enhance our unbelief. We don't want to believe because it requires risk. We don't want to believe because it requires risk. Consider how fear and unbelief in action together, though, can look like prudence. And this is where we all have to really examine our hearts. Are we really pursuing prudence? Are we just trying to protect our own little kingdoms? We're told twice in the book of Proverbs, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. And so it's certainly likely that at least a few or perhaps many of the disciples in Jerusalem were trying to put this kind of thinking, this wise thinking, in place. Now, nevertheless, though, there does remain a fine line between acting according to prudence versus just simply being motivated by fear and unbelief. I think we can confuse ourselves. We can deceive ourselves with this line of thinking if we're not careful. I would say if we would err, brothers and sisters, let us err by receiving a pretender rather than by erring through rejecting a true believer. Let me say that again. I hope that we would err by receiving a pretender, not err by rejecting a true believer. We saw what happened with Simon the sorcerer. He was received, and he ended up being a pretender. And then the Ethiopian eunuch was brought right into the church. And so there's this charity judgment that we grant as believers And it it means that we will always be at a disadvantage against evil. But evil is always at a disadvantage against Jesus. And that's what we must remember. Commentary says, They believed not that he was a disciple, but only pretended to be so, and came among them as a spy or as an informer. They knew what a bitter persecutor he had been, with what fury he went to Damascus some time ago. They had heard nothing of him since, and therefore thought he was but a wolf in sheep's clothing. The disciples of Christ had need to be cautious whom they admit into communion with them. Believe not every spirit. There is need of the wisdom of the serpent to keep the mean between the extremes of suspicion on the one hand and credulity on the other. Yet methinks it is safer to err on the charitable side because it is an adjudged case that it is better the tares should be found among the wheat than that the wheat should any of it be rooted up and thrown out of the field. So do you see the principle here, brothers and sisters, that we are required to take risks in this life? We cannot know the true state of another's person's heart how well do you even know your own heart and so we are required to take risks in relationships and that means we must have faith in Christ there's no risk in trusting Christ and as we trust him he takes us into risky situations so what happens how does God solve this problem here 
between Saul, and this is a very serious problem. And from a human perspective, there's really not any answer to this. God solves the problem through the son of encouragement. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. A great prayer, a great prayer would be, God, make me like Barnabas. God, make me like Barnabas. Make me a son of encouragement. Oh, God, that someone would want to change my name to Barnabas. How often do we discourage one another with our words? How often do we end up through discouragement instead of strengthening God's body together? We end up not strengthening when we can or maybe even pushing people apart from one another because we are not encouragers. Because we're not rooted in the consolation of Israel. We've been introduced to Barnabas already by Luke and he is a major player in the book of Acts. Can't wait to meet him by God's grace. Acts 4, and Joseph, that's his given name, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. It's an island there, a little bit south of Tarsus. Verse 37 now, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas, he is always bringing things to the apostles, good things. Here we see money, next it's going to be salt. What does he do? He works to build up God's church. So much so that they nicknamed him Son of Encouragement. That is worth considering, brothers and sisters. Because how many of us are like that? How often are are we not like this? Oh, God have mercy on us. So this word encouragement here It does relate to exhortation and admonition, but but exhortations and admonitions that encourage, that leave the heart grown up in faith, that leave a brightness to the soul. Even in the midst of uh, constructive criticism, the encourager leaves you with hope that you are in Christ, that you are growing. And in connection with this, there's comfort, there's consolation, there's solace, there's refreshment. So the encourager, even in improving and pointing out weaknesses, there's always a comfort at the end of it. And this is a phrase that's used of messianic, this word is used of messianic salvation. And in Luke 22:25, listen to how the word is used. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That word consolation is encourager, encouragement. Jesus Christ is termed here the consolation of Israel. Oh, we need, we need a deeper drink, and we need to be more like this, brothers and sisters. And Barnabas will go on to serve as a faithful friend to Saul for decades to come. And it won't be until a significant disagreement regarding Mark, who's probably his nephew, that he and Saul have to part ways for a time. But Barnabas goes with him on his second and his third missionary journey. He's with him. 
How many times in your Bible do you see Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul? Barnabas is the son of encouragement. So God brings this man who he has, God has made into an encourager. Barnabas has been drinking deeply of God's grace. And God has made him an encourager. And he's trusted by the apostles. And he brings him to this moment to make a difference. And not only does he work to bring the church together in Jerusalem, but this act of peacemaking will then bring this long and fruitful relationship into being between him and Saul. It's going to be a beautiful thing to look at over time as we consider it. It'll be one of the themes for us to consider, not just Barnabas, but what friendships like that can look like and what they can accomplish together when those types of people come together. People focused on Christ, people filled with love for Christ, people humbled by Christ, people whose strengths and gifts are combined together by Christ for Christ and for their, for their joy. There's three things that Barnabas does here, and they're, they're worth noting because we can learn from this. First of all, he took Saul. It's not just a throwaway word. It means to lay hold of, to take possession of someone or something, to overtake, to seize with the hands, and by metaphor it means to rescue from peril. So there's some sort of protection that Saul needs here. And Barnabas is somehow aware of it, and he goes to him, and he applies this to him. Commentary says the idea of taking him here has the force of taking him under his wing. So Barnabas, he's not frightened off by the idea that Saul is an apostle. Now, does he know that yet? I don't know, but he somehow knows about what he went through with Jesus working in him, and that he's going to be a mighty servant of Christ. He just wants to help Saul, it appears. It's as if he's drawn to the awareness that this man needs some comfort. This man needs some encouragement. And so the first thing he's got to do is to just stop him right there. This is the taking that takes place. This is the under the wing that takes place. So he goes to him, he lays hold of him, he brings him under his wings. He didn't want Saul to leave Jerusalem in a bad state. He didn't want him to leave at all. So the first thing he has to do is arrest Saul from accepting the rejection by the Jerusalem church and having it do something within him. This rescuing likely would have entailed conversations between Saul and Barnabas. Barnabas seeking to reassure Saul that Barnabas' own testimony on his behalf before the apostles could perhaps change the situation could perhaps get them to change their minds about Saul. They probably prayed together. Sought the Lord to prepare the hearts of the apostles for this meeting. And there weren't probably a lot of other people that could have had the kind of trust necessary on both sides to be this kind of peacemaker. So what happens next? You can see there's a connection now between Barnabas and Saul and that connection there is combined together with Barnabas' connection with the apostles. See, this is what encouragers do. Encouragers bring the people of God together. 
Having established this initial connection with Saul, Barnabas goes on toward his goal of uniting Saul with the Jerusalem church. Barnabas gets them together in the same room so this important conversation can occur. People have to be together. People have to talk to each other. That's that's how this kind of thing gets resolved. Barnabas is trusted by the apostles. He has some trust now with Saul so he can help ease the fears on both sides and help them listen to one another to achieve the communion for which Christ shed his precious blood. It's to bring us into friendship with him and with one another. Peace with God and peace with men. Barnabas is trying to help bring this to pass. Plus, I'm sure he sees the kind of synergistic relationships that need to be established. Next, getting them into the same room, bringing them together, which is no small feat when there's trust problems like this. People being imprisoned, people being killed. Saul had been rejected, treated like an imposter. There's major trust issues. So Barnabas, by God's grace, gets them into the same room. Many of you have perhaps tried this type of thing and failed. Many of you have perhaps wanted to get God's people together into the same room talking and have failed. So let's not miss the miracle that's already taken place here. The trust between Saul and Barnabas. The trust between Barnabas and the apostles and the ability for them all to be in the same room. Next. Barnabas is there and he's going to speak on behalf of Saul to the Jerusalem leaders, to the apostles. This is very important. Uh, commentary says, how he had, under the text says, how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So this is Barnabas testifying on Saul's behalf, telling them, this man saw Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus gave him a commission. And then he went and lived it out in Damascus so much that they were trying to kill him. Saul is testifying on his behalf. By declaring this himself as true, so Barnabas declares this, that adds credibility to Saul's Christian testimony. And in addition, whether he knew it or not, Barnabas is also helping the apostles see the evidence that Saul, like them, was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord and that Saul had, like them, spoken with Jesus, like them, received a commission directly from Jesus. So like them, having the qualifications necessary to be an apostle. And even more, this conversion and calling are evidenced by Saul going on and preaching Christ boldly, we're told, at Damascus. That word boldly, when you see boldly, think Holy Spirit. You see the word boldly, think Holy Spirit. Because the only way that we can go forward and present the gospel in the face of mortal threats is by the Holy Spirit's power to give us the ability to speak the gospel when our lives are on the line. The attempt of the Jews to kill Saul, the Jews in Damascus, would have been discussed. So all this evidence would have been laid out there for the apostles to consider who Saul is. That's a lot. And they change their mind. And that's good news. Brothers and sisters, a new Christian may encounter resistance from God's people. Especially if the new believer has a notorious past. And, 
you know, we're all cleaned up in here. We've got our nice clothes on. Uh, and that's good. We want to arrive to worship in the right state. We also want to be so careful to be welcoming and to be reaching out and to be having open hearts towards those who are seeking to join with God's church. Consider well, brothers and sisters, how we can help enfold new believers into the body of Christ. <clears throat> Commentary says, the introducing of a young convert into the communion of the faithful is a very good work and one which as we have opportunity, we should be ready to do. <clears throat> we can be encouragers like that. We can strengthen God's church like that. Let us also well consider how we can each grow up as encouragers, those who bring God's people together in God's church. Are we known as those who comfort one another and build up the unity and peace of God's church? You know, Presbyterians <clears throat> sadly don't really have this reputation a lot of times. Um, the tendency, sadly, is to um, fragment and, and form a new denomination, form a new church, form a new way. Uh, so sure that our way is finally the right way. Uh, may we not be that way, brothers and sisters. May that not be true of us. May we be those who are known to comfort and to build up the unity and the peace of God's church. Also, note here who is acting. It's not Barnabas, ultimately, it's the Lord's gracious goodness, the Lord's gracious commitment to unite his church together. This is a hard moment. With limited vision, who can know who Saul really is? In spite of the significant hurdles that are in place here, Jesus uses Barnabas to overcome the fear and unbelief. And this should greatly encourage us because life's difficult questions cannot be answered with our own wisdom and our own power. But Jesus is with us, and he will help us through these unreadable hieroglyphs that come our way in life. He will be the one who takes us through it and solves the mystery. Jesus uses encouragers to help increase the faith and courage of other believers, help to clarify situations. He uses encouragers to bring peace and strengthening and growth to his body. This should very much encourage us, brothers and sisters. This was a significant hurdle and Jesus, in his gracious kindness, solves it for them and he continues to do this to this day. There are many Gordian knots that we will face in our lives. Things that we could never untie or untangle and yet we have to somehow get from point A to point B. Jesus can untangle every knot. And this shows us that even the hardest questions, Jesus can lead us through. Next, what happens as a result of this? Saul is enfolded into the Jerusalem church. It says, so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Another way of saying it, according to the commentary, is that so he stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem. He was welcome. He was brought in. He was enfolded. Not just in word, but in deed. After they're freed from their fear and their unbelief, at least freed enough to trust Jesus with the risk, they receive Saul. 
and he participates in the daily life of the church there. The Lord has granted the Jerusalem believers to have faith and courage enough to risk relationship with Saul. I mean, think about it, what he had done. I mean, it'd be a really nice ploy to pull a trick, right? Find out where everybody lives and then turn them all in. But they decide to move into the risk and to accept him and to love him and trust that Christ's work in him is real. And even if it's not, the same Savior who was raised from the dead can deliver them. And the reception of Saul, it's not just in word, but also in deed. As they include Saul in the ongoing activities of the church fellowship, coming in and going out, he became a regular participant in the regular life of the church. And in this context, also think about it, he's being granted opportunity to further prove his repentance by his deeds in their midst so that their trust can grow. And in that, they are seeing his faith displayed, and so they are being reassured of who he is over time. So it serves as a way for the Jerusalem church to experience the blessings of Saul's new life and faith in Christ. So now they're being blessed by him, and they have this communication, this communion of fellowship taking place together. Note, please, how the Lord's work, the Lord's work of faith leads to the outward expressions in the life of believers. Faith never stays inside. When God gives us faith, he takes us into new ways of living or continued faithful living in the face of greater challenges. Their trust in Christ regarding Saul is displayed by their love towards Saul. So they take their eyes off of Saul and through Barnabas' work, they all together put their eyes on Jesus. And this brings them together. And that's still what God does today for his people. So Saul has a mission. We all have a mission. Their fellowship is clearly strengthening him. That He's being built up to do the works of ministry that he's called to do. And he does them in Jerusalem. He spoke boldly, verse 29, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempt, attempted to kill him. So this is a pattern we will see over and over again. We've already seen it, we'll see it more and more uh, as we go through the book of Acts. While he's there, Saul continues in the work of ministry that Christ had called him to embrace. Saul didn't take any timeouts from his commission, at least not at this point. Not only has he demonstrated his repentance while living in the midst of the Jerusalem church, but now he shows his commitment to his commission by risking his life. Now, where is he? As he boldly proclaims the gospel to the Hellenist Jews in Jerusalem where Jesus was killed and where Stephen was killed. That's where he is right now. Don't forget that. This is more dangerous than Damascus. The same group these Hellenist Jews, that's the same group that ended up killing Stephen. Do you remember that? They're described as Jews from various regions around the synagogue of the freedmen. So Saul knows this because he was present when they killed Stephen. So he has all the information he needs to know that you don't dispute with these guys and have it go well for you. Stephen showed them from scriptures and they killed him. Most people would be like, I'm not going to talk with these people. But he does. And he goes and he boldly proclaims the gospel, not just proclaiming the gospel, but disputing with them. So boldness 
think Holy Spirit at work, but also think this, continuing to preach and live out the gospel in the face of any threat. So the external threats against you do not define whether you're continuing to live and to preach the gospel. Might you shift course and go somewhere else like Saul does? Sure, but are you going to stop? Never. Never. Commentary says, Note, those that speak for Christ have reason to speak boldly. For they have a good cause and speak for one who will at last speak for himself and for them too. Your Savior sees you when you speak for Him. When you speak for Him, when you speak of Him, when you declare His glory and you testify to His work in your life, changing you, saving you from your sins, growing you up in Him, and you proclaim the gospel and call others to faith and repentance, you may do so with absolute confidence that you are speaking the most certain words that can be spoken and that you have a king and a savior who sees you, who defends you, who protects you, and who will at the last speak for you no matter what may come from your work. So brothers and sisters, be evangelists, be apologists, be those who live faithfully and do not do it with fear, do it with faith which means boldness. No apologies necessary for following Christ and loving Jesus. No apologies necessary for integrating the Lord Jesus Christ into every aspect of your life, everywhere you go. No apologies necessary. Boldness. Present Him as your great Savior and King. Now this word disputed means to seek or examine together. And in the New Testament, it's to discuss, it's to dispute It's to question. So Saul, like he had done in Damascus, was proving to them from Scripture that Jesus is the Christ who had to suffer, who had to die for the sins of his people, and who rose up again to deliver them, all of his people, from their sin, from death, from the devil, and from hell. He's proving to them that this Jesus is the Christ that was prophesied in all the Old Testament writings. Commentary says the Grecians or the Hellenist Jews were most offended at him because he had been one of them. And they drew him into a dispute in which no doubt he was too hard for them as he had been for the Jews at Damascus. So like he proved there, remember we talked about last week, he had left all of their arguments in the dust. There was no rational basis for them to continue to refuse Jesus as the Christ. And yet they did. And the only way they could then silence him was to take the breath from his lungs, to take the life from his body. And that's what they try to do again here in Jerusalem. So what happens next? They try to kill him. Do they thank Saul for the life-giving preaching that he gave to them? Do they marvel that the Messiah has come Do they submit to the unassailable force of his biblical arguments? Do they love and worship Jesus? No. The hard-hearted Jews dig into their unbelief and they seek to kill Saul. So remember, you can present the gospel clearly, accurately, and the folks listening to you 
will not believe unless the Holy Spirit is there to give them faith. Okay, it's not Saul's fault that they're trying to kill him. Okay, it's their own fault. He didn't trigger them into trying to kill him. He preached the gospel and their own sin responded. Commentary says, when they found they could not deal with him in disputation, contrived to silence him another way, they went about to slay him as they did Stephen when they could not resist the spirit by which he spoke. That is a bad cause that has recourse to persecution for its last argument. (laughs) That is a bad cause that has recourse to persecution as its last argument. And again, we see this was not honest disputation. Their only goal was to silence him. They didn't care what he had to say. They were not going to believe him. That's not honest disputation. And they prove it by going on to try to kill him. So what happens next? Well, you know, in Damascus, they got ropes and a basket, and they somehow found out when he was, how they were watching, and they snuck him out over the wall, through the wall, at night. You know, the church working together is a beautiful thing. The unified church is a beautiful thing. Imagine what had happened if Saul had gone out and just started preaching in Jerusalem and there's no church there to help him. And he's all by himself. Now, could Jesus still deliver him? Of course he could. But not in a way that demonstrates the glory and the beauty of Christ's church working together. Right? I mean, that's one of the points that we see in Damascus and in Jerusalem, and we'll see it over and over again, is that God's sovereign Perfect wisdom delivering his people from threat and harm often takes place through the church, through his people loving each other and watching out for one another. So verse 30, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. We don't know why they did specifically this, but we can have some speculation. First, though, note again God's kind providence to bring this murder plot to light. Brothers and sisters, rest assured that no one can harm you by surprising God with some sudden attack against you. (laughs) No one can surprise God and he loves you. He is your shepherd. He's the one who defends you and protects you and watches after you. And if he is watching after you, no one can have a sneak attack against you. No force or power can deceive, surprise, or outflank God. Now, being from Tarsus, Saul is now sent back to his hometown, likely by way of the sea from that great port, Caesarea. And it was a really impressive port, according to historians like Josephus at that time. Now, we're not told why Saul is sent to Tarsus, but the flight from peril, right, he's fleeing from peril, suggests a place of haven awaits him in Tarsus. It is his hometown, but more than that even, it seems as though it's a place where he'll have some safety. The Jerusalem church is risking their own safety now for Saul. Think about it. Do you see the transition there? Isn't that beautiful? First they won't take him in because they're afraid they're going to be harmed. Now they're going to help him and they're going to transport him to safety, and they're going to jeopardize their own safety by doing it. They're one body at work together now. Consider that great change. They're, first, they're rejecting him. They're afraid. They're just looking to cover their own skin. But now they risk their lives for their brother Saul. 
And that might be a bit harsh. You know, there were some really hard questions that needed to be answered, right? But Jesus took them through that, and now they're working together. Now they're working together, and it's a beautiful thing. Those by whom God has work to do shall be protected from all the designs of their enemies against them till it be done. Christ's witnesses cannot be slain till they have finished their testimony. Brothers and sisters, are you a witness of Christ? I hope you are. And that means you cannot be slain until you have finished your testimony. Until you have finished the work that God has called you to do. No one, you are immortal. On this earth, no one can take you off this earth until God is done with you. That should be great encouragement to us. All right. So here it comes to a culmination. We see this strong, healthy, and growing church. This is such a beautiful section of Scripture. There's been this great persecution that broke out in Jerusalem at the time of Stephen, and it's spread all over, and Saul has taken it as far as Damascus and even elsewhere. This great time of capturing, imprisoning, and killing Christians. God saves Saul. God makes Saul a witness for Christ. And then God does this in his church. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now, the hatred of the Jews had not passed. Their desire to eliminate and kill Christians had not passed. But God, in His infinite kindness, determined that for a time, in this place, His church would greatly multiply. And that's what He is doing. He's not only bringing peace and strength just to the Jerusalem church, but through the whole region. He's also blessing His church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And the description of what they're enjoying is so beautiful. Think of it. They enjoy peace. They have peace with one another. They're living at peace with one another within the churches. They're having edification in the midst of this communion that they're sharing, this fellowship of peace that they're sharing. They're being built up. They're each growing up in faith, becoming more like Christ. And the churches are being strengthened through the work of the gospel in their midst. They are walking in the fear of the Lord, this reverence. Do you dwell in God's presence? Is your mind aware that you are living in His presence? I found it so helpful in my interactions, especially uh, as a physician, to just really think of Jesus sitting right there with me in the room as I'm talking to my patients. And I found that maybe I should do that more often. <laughs> I don't know why it's become such a habit there, but it's not a habit elsewhere in my life. And I think if we, we did that, walking in the fear of the Lord, how, how, mo how much more likely would we be to be encouragers and not discouragers if we were walking in the fear of the Lord? That reverence, that awareness that He's with us, that He'll help us, that He'll be with us, that He will strengthen us, that He'll give us His wisdom, that He'll help us be encouragers. They were receiving his comfort, his consolation. And even though the church was having peace and being edified and they were walking in the fear of the Lord, they, 
They still had people who were sick. They still had people who were dying. They still had to deal with this fallen world. They still lived in the midst of the threat of the Roman Empire and the apostate Jews and all of the other turmoil of their time. They still lived in a fallen world. They still longed for heaven like we do. And they were being comforted to not give way, to not give way to discouragement or dejection or despair or depression. They were being comforted and strengthened in in the goodness of the Lord. And what happens when people are experiencing this? The church grows, right? And this is what God does within his people and around his people. Um, So often we see in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, when he's working within his people, he's also working around his people. He's making them a beautiful demonstration to the hearts of those in whom he's already working so that they're able to perceive the beauty of the gospel at work in these people. Commentary says, after a storm comes a calm that we are always to expect troublesome times, yet we may expect that they shall not last always This was a breathing time allowed them to prepare them for the next encounter. And we know that great tribulation to come upon the church had not begun yet. There had been some tribulation, but that great tribulation upon the church would not begin yet. So this is the time, at least one of the times, where the church is growing and they're having peace and they're not being persecuted as strongly during this time. So let us give thanks and praise God for what he did then in the life of Saul, what he did then to use Barnabas to bring Saul together, to unite his church, to edify and build up his church. Let us rejoice that this same Holy Spirit works in us to give us boldness, to continue in faith and courage, to follow Christ on the path that he's given to each one of us, and that he will pour out his Spirit upon us to give us Christ-likeness in our lives and boldness in our speech as we speak of Jesus Christ. And that we can continue to look to Jesus and perhaps, perhaps the storm that we've been experiencing is past or will be past. Perhaps maybe the Lord would even grant to us a time of such great peace and comfort and edification and growth in grace, growth in Christ-likeness, walking in the fear of the Lord together, the simple daily walking in the fear of the Lord together unto great growth in our own lives, in our families, in our church, not just words, but real growth, and that we would perhaps see a great work of God around us, that many would come to him, and that we would see his church multiplied. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do look to you, Lord, and we rejoice in your gracious kindness to us. And we again, Lord, see how empty we are and how full you are and how good you are to pour out your fullness in us and through us. Oh, and how you love your church and how you are working in your people to do your will, uniting your people, comforting your people, strengthening your people, building us up into a a holy temple in Christ, the cornerstone, and how you are working in your people and around this world to 
cause a great growth of your church and to strengthen and bring peace and unity to your people. Oh God, we pray that you would forgive us for how we so often are afraid and filled with unbelief. Or please give us faith. Or please give us courage to, to walk in your ways and to do your will. Oh, we love you and we thank you, Father, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall accomplish this. In Jesus' name.